I'm Jean, and this is Perfect Flow. I'm a New Zealand-based athlete and coach focused on optimizing performance, health, and well-being. While I have a professional background in biomedical engineering, I've chosen to follow my more immediate passions for running, endurance, adventure, movement, nutrition, lifestyle, community, psychology, and personal growth. My goal in starting this podcast is to connect with bright minds to extract the information I need to live a life that makes sense and feels good, and share those conversations with others. Apart from your favorite podcast app, the best places to follow my work are perfectflow.nz, genebeverage.nz, and perfectflow on Facebook. Hey, Jean here. Welcome back to Perfect Flow. This is episode 33 of Perfect Flow, and it is with team number 33 from Godzone. I had the chance to sit down with the secret billionaires. That's Alistair McDowell, Emily Wilson, Reese John, Tom Hadley, and one of their support crew, Tim Burrell, and talk about their journey to fifth place in Godzone. They took just under seven days to complete the course, and it was a massive mission this year. So I was really looking forward to hearing how they tackled the navigation, of course. There were a lot of big decisions to be made on those trekking legs. And uh, you'll hear the whole uh, journey of their their, their course um, out en route, plus a little bit about their preparation. And I think this episode is just jam-packed with tips for anyone who's looking to do God's Own or any such races in the future. Um, These guys are getting right up there amongst the best, but they've still got things that they've they're looking to work on next time they had some good ideas around the types of training that worked really well and some of the preparation they wish they had have done more of there was also a lot of good advice about keeping feet operational and that was really crucial with some of these long treks and as those who were following god's own know some teams were at, were forced to pull off the course due to uh, feet issues and I was really happy to hear about uh, Reese's uh, navigation. Uh, it was really outstanding taking uh, that level of navigational proficiency through seven days with very little sleep. It was really impressive, and he's got some good tips, especially with night nav. And I also found some of the psychology really interesting, especially about stopping when you want to keep going, and uh, it's really prudent to stop or slow down and deal with some issues, but. There's some really tricky human biases to overcome there and they've got some really great advice for anyone who's doing some of these long expedition races in the future. So please enjoy this conversation with the secret billionaires. And I should also add that if you're keen to see the maps, then they're available in a blog post on my website, genebeverage.nz. And also there is a video to go along with this recording. If you're just listening to the podcast, then consider watching on YouTube. Uh, or also on genebeverage.nz. There's a video there. So I'm here with the Secret Billionaires. Thanks, guys. We've got the whole team uh, that's managed to come on, including support crew. So most people will be listening to this just on audio. So uh, it's helpful if the listeners can uh, get the sound of your voice. So how about we just... uh, start going around uh, all uh, five of you and just just say hi and w- what your name is so kia ora. um my name's tom yeah that's me 
I, uh, I'm Reese, Reese John. Um, good to meet you all. Hey, I'm Alistair, and um, thanks, Jane, for having us on your podcast. Cool. Emily? And I'm Emily. Hey, guys. Great to have, great to hear you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tim. I'm the support crew for these legends. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're going to get into your story uh, for, for God's Own this year. Uh, I thought we'd start just by uh, listing off what your kind of combined experience is uh, so far. How, how many years, how many God Zones do you have between you all? So I think I can answer that. Um, so uh, it's Reese speaking. We, I think Emily is possibly the most experienced of all of us. She was saying in uh, during this race, this is her eighth God Zone. I think she's had two forced um, um, forced sidelines with injuries and uh, surgeries in the last couple of years, but um, she's definitely the the stalwart with the most experience and uh, has a lot to bring to the table from that respect. I think I'm next on uh, seven. This was my seventh, uh, having not done the first one, and then and then uh, Rotorua and and uh, Canterbury were the ones other ones I've missed. Uh, so that was good to come back. And then, uh, and then Alistair, I can't remember how many you've done, three or is it four? Uh, I did Kaikoura and Wanaka, so this was my third. Third. And, uh, and then we've got young Tom Hadley, who's, uh, who's, who's it, it was his first go, uh, although you wouldn't know it. Fresh. Nice one, Tom. Cool. And, and how was your preparation going into this? Uh, was everyone fit, healthy, no injuries? Uh, I can talk about that. So our team came together about last year, last July. But um, one of the challenges was that we were all scattered across the country. Reese and I were in Christchurch. Emily's in Wanaka. And Tom was a bit of a late uh, ring-in. So we didn't really get too many team missions in per se. We, Reese, Emily and I did one Packcraft uh, trek mission in Mount Cook area about two months beforehand. But other than that, we're all doing active things throughout the throughout the year and as they say you don't train for god's own in a few months or even one year it's the last 10 years which will add up to to add up to to help you on the day or the week uh but i think none of us had real any injuries which was good going into it you've got to be totally fresh yeah and what kind of preparation uh what were the rest of you doing yeah so i definitely felt a bit undercooked this year um uh, my wife Jen and I have just had a baby. Well, he's actually uh, he turned one the day before God's own, so <laughs> that was um, in the midst of all the packing. We had a birthday cake, but it's it's meant that that combined with a a busy a busy work schedule has uh, has given me not much time to to do what I'd normally consider to be adequate God's own training. So I think. Um, I think a lot of Saturdays consisted of walking up the Port Hills here in Christchurch with uh, with Angus on the back, and then we'd get to the the, the, the top of the Sugarloaf, the highest point uh, near where we live, and then drop down to the, the the cafe at the top there, and Jen would order a coffee, and I'd do a couple more laps uh, up the up the uh, Sugarloaf, and you know manage to accrue about maybe eight hundred meters climb total, but you know it never felt quite as much as uh, as I'd want to, and then. You know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the biking had to be just back and forth to work and a couple of local bike rides. But yeah, as as Al says, I think I think in any of these these longer races, it seems well. I've cert- certainly learned with this race, it seems more to be to be what your experience is rather than you know how f- how cardiovascularly fit you are going into it. Certainly, 
you know, I, d- I didn't consider myself to have a top end going into the race, but you never use your top end anyway. So mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to matter. So how heavy is young Angus compared to a pack raft? Well, he's, he's two and a half pack rafts now. Nice. So he's, he's, he's 10 and a half kilos. So almost two and a half pack rafts, um, depending on whether they're wet or dry. So, you know, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah so he's he was he was a good uh, uh substitute for a for a nice heavy pack with a few other bits and pieces a bag of rice in the bottom of the of the um of the of the carrier with him was was quite a good uh simulation weight and emily how are you going into this year's god zone compared to your preparation level of preparation in previous ones yeah i felt pretty fit like i'd actually been training for coast which i know is a bit faster and lighter so I don't consider that great build up to God's own but um, I work a bit in the bush and I'm just I suppose like Reese touched on from years and years of doing stuff in the back country I always feel pretty strong and confident the longer it goes you know um, I feel like it's more about team dynamics than it is necessarily about um, being super fit like I mean I suppose strength endurance just comes with age and it's good yeah I felt personally pretty good I'd had a um yeah a long lead in and just consistency always out doing things and um consistency across all three disciplines is always good too you know like I often every week I'm biking running and and paddling so it's yeah it all adds up I think yeah that must feel great to know that your fitness is so embedded into your physiology that it's not going to disappear because you don't do sharp training for a few months yeah I feel like yeah you just I'm not saying that I would feel completely relaxed. Like I'm not, I mean, yeah, it, it pays to be fit by all means, but um, I think time on your feet and you being used to a heavy pack is probably more important, especially for these longer versions. Like we knew this year was going to be, you know, um, like Reese alluded to it's, you know, you don't quite need that top end. It's more just how, um, how prepared you are to be a bit, just a bit uncomfortable and to ride that wave really. But I think, um, as you'll hear, I suppose, through the tales, um, we definitely did a bit of that. But no, yeah, it's good. It's a good feeling. You just, it's more about the teamwork, team element. I think that's that's mm-hmm. really where, what what it comes down to in the end. And Tom, how did you feel going into your first gold zone? Were you nervous? Um, yeah, I was pretty excited going into the, my first one. Um, I'd done quite a bit of adventure racing more in the time when I was in high school. So I think I knew what to expect with gold zone. So I was very much excited for that um yeah most of that summer i spent spending a lot a lot of time on my feet doing consecutive days of the big pack i was um working for a company called mcu basically doing stoke trapping in fiordland so kind of doing five days at a time in the bush for work and then when i wasn't in the bush for work i was doing my own trips in the hills um so lots of rock climbing lots of time on the feet and I kind of convinced myself that that would be appropriate training for God's own. And I think it, it did pay off in the end. And, and yeah. was worth I don't think you're making that up. Yeah. That sounds <laughs> exactly what God's own <laughs> turned into. Cool. So uh, let's get on to the race. I want to hear your first thoughts when you saw the course. Yeah. I was really excited when I first saw the course. Um, I knew it was going to be this traverse from coast to coast. So I was kind of plotting and, scheming on on which where it might cross the divide but having a course like that that gets into some properly wild parts of New Zealand's backcountry I think really appealed to me 
and then also saying that it was going to be a, a big long one with um yeah multiple days and some big tracking stages i think was quite exciting so it's going to really play to our team's strengths with going the going the distance i think yeah alistair you've been doing some some big tricks in the last year as well so did you feel like this would play into your strengths well um a lot of the trips that i do longer uh backcountry runs and mountaineering trips are actually with a much lighter pack than you you do in God's own God's own this year, the first 155k trek was with the pack craft and three days of food, and uh, at sort of a faster intensity. So I actually felt a little bit un- undercooked in that first those first stages. Um, I'm always trying to go as light and fast as possible. So probably could have done some more pack craft missions and maybe some stoke trapping with Tom would have been good preparation. Yeah, stoke trapping with a little Angus. Yeah, I think in God's Zone, it definitely is all about long and heavy. And that's the sort of training you need to be doing. Um, but I still enjoyed really long trekking stages. Emily, was that was that first stage one of the, well, I think well, it was technically the second stage, but was that long trek the longest single stage you've done in your eight God Zones? Yeah, because I missed actually the Fjordland one. So I spent a bit of time in Fjordland myself. But um, yeah, that yeah it did shape up to be absolutely yeah it was long but it also had enough variety to keep it you know interesting enough and you had a bit of that river time to puncture up some of the walking <laughs> i feel yeah. like it probably felt a little bit longer because we didn't quite nail our nail the sleep strategy maybe <laughs> on that first night but um in general yeah it was pretty amazing like i think i'll never forget that or we won't i'm sure the sunrise over the red hills it was pretty amazing you know you felt really deep in it and you're like yes we're not lily dipping and oh you know we're really we're in it here which is quite cool yeah yeah that that's amazing did you find that the navigation choices on that leg uh intimidating or like really important to get right or did you feel like yeah there were options and either option is okay who, who was who was lead nav race was i mean i think yeah. he can talk to this but yeah we um well we sat down and once we got the maps and and had a look at some of the stages and i think as always with god's own you know the 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 real nav decisions are made on the treks um most of the time the the bikes and the paddles don't contain too much in the way of nav choice um so we we looked at the long trek and you know you could immediately see that there were two options there one was over the red hills or well well actually we'd initially looked at going um before we'd had a good look at it we'd looked at going all the way up the cascade and over the saddle um which we we rapidly learned was going to lead us into uh to, to real to real um steep country and and a lot of gorgy sections so we discarded that idea and so that left us with the idea of going over the red hills or around the coast. Now, I think, I think subsequently I've learned that there was an option to go uh, further, slightly further west and avoid going over the Red Hills, which maybe um, further faster might have done. But um, looking at those two route choices, it was, um, it, we were allowed the access to, to other um, uh, information sources. And uh, one of those, of course, is Moyer's Guide, which, you know, has ex- extremely good um, route descriptions. But, you know, these are all at tramping paces, so you have to kind of adjust what you're... Um, so, so further north from there, that first section up the, 
up the cascade. You kind of need to adjust those, and um, and and you also need to consider the fact that the tramping routes are not always the fastest routes as well. Um, but it looked that like the Red Hills was going to be about 1,500 metres more vert, but maybe a bit quicker, um, maybe 10, 15 k's less um, in terms of linear distance. Uh, and then around the coast was going to be much less vert, but you know unknown amounts of rock hopping, which could be quite hard on the feet, um, and you know potentially difficult uh, to get across some of those rivers. Um, but in terms of time-wise, it seemed about the same. It did um, seem quite well balanced, actually, following following the GPS, but very very decisive, like a very bold call um, to go for for those who went out to the to the ocean. And even for like that, they're all. Each route has a major challenge. Mm. I mean, you're certainly. I, I think you have to look at your own strengths when you're deciding on your route. I spoke with um, Highland Events, who was Team Twenty Three there out the front of the uh, coastal route, um, and they they were very aware that they were quite quick on their feet and they were quite keen to avoid the vert. And I think it paid off for them because they came came through that apparently quite quite fresh and. We were, I mean, personally, I felt quite tired coming off that Red Hill section because you get up to the ridge, which you think is going to be easy travel. And then there's, you know, 100 meters up and down every time you go up to a little peak. And there was lots of little peaks to go over. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of uncounted verse in there that you, you know, it's easy to forget about. Um, and so it was definitely more punishing than we expected going across there, I think. Um, you add add that add to the fact that it's night and uh, and then there's mist and uh, and you're wet and all those other things, um, and you know it leads you to be quite quite tired after just the first night. So where did the twenty four hour mark put you? So we were um, I guess twenty four hours was was eleven o'clock or t- midday. We would have been in the pike by that time. So the sun came up um, on the top of the red hills uh, where number team number one is there. I think they were just in front of us at the time or we, we were with them so this is bang on sunrise from what i can see so you can see um uh, avaya is already coming down the hill um and then there's a group of us on the top of the red hills watching the sunrise um yeah but by the time by the time we got to 24 hours in we were about about a third of the way down the pike not just above um that first little lake Yeah, and then, yeah, that's it's pretty amazing. Um, doing that whole yeah twenty four hours just to take you uh, over into the into the true wilderness, mm-hmm. uh, but then you still had another two days on essentially doing this trek pack raft uh, combo. What was the sleep strategy like on this stage? Maybe I'll pick on uh, Tom. Yeah, um, I think the sleep strategy is something that we definitely could have improved on in this stage. And uh, I guess that's just one of those many things where you learn from your experiences. Um, Going into that stage, we knew that there's the dark zone on the pike. So it's definitely in the back of our minds that we wanted to be moving as quickly and as efficiently as possible through those, uh, through the Red Hill section in order to make it onto the pike and in good time to um, not get stuck in that dark zone. And I think for us in our heads, we 
thought that to make that dark zone the best um, way to keep moving efficiently would be to just push through that first night and and not sleep at all. Um, so as just to spend the maximum amount of time moving. So I think we got up to the bush line just along um, where the Red Hills tops were starting. And we had like a brief half discussion about whether we should get a little bit of sleep there. But I think both that dark zone in our minds and also just the excitement of being out there and, and moving meant that we just pushed through without without taking a sleep there. And we got, we got a bit excited as well, didn't we? Because we um, another team caught us at that point and it probably um, uh, affected our decision making. It looks like you yeah. were close with ataraxia at that time. Yeah. Uh, top sport. You, you were with top sport. Yeah. That's right. So we kind of pushed on and then along the tops there, I think we were flagging a bit. We weren't moving as smoothly as we would have liked to be. And yeah, just really struggling to keep the eyes open at times. So in retrospect, which is, you know, nice to have hindsight for sure. It probably would have paid off to have about an hour's sleep there, but, um, at that point we're committed so we carried on and basically pushed through that whole next day and fortunately we despite not moving as well as we would have liked still made good time and made it through that dark zone on the pike and we're getting out of our boats just on sunset which was or just as it was getting dark really which was really exciting and then by that time we were pretty keen to have a really good sleep so we ended up taking i think we had three hours of sleep in the Hollyford and that was possibly one of the best sleeps we had of the race. Mm. We're all straight out and you know, just a nice dry forest, which, which I think set us in really good stead for the next day. Mm -hmm. So, so zero, there, sorry, I'll, I'll just clarify. So zero hours on the first night and then three, uh, on the second night and you got, you, you got to the start of the trail when you had that sleep so that you could wake up in the middle of the night and, get moving as opposed to what would it have been with the dark zone, a forced eight hours or 10 hours? Actually, um, yeah, so we got off the boats that evening and then there was a checkpoint at one of the huts on the Hollyford. I think it was it was maybe Sunshine Hut. Um, so we actually pushed on to that hut and got two hours of the Hollyford track under our belts before we slept that night. So yeah, we woke up and then um, knowing that there's going to be a complicated bit of um, bush travel and some slightly more technical navigation the next morning, we um, slept in a way that meant that it would get light within a few hours of starting the next day. And I think that paid off as well. Yeah, nice. Alistair? I, I think what happened there was by the time that it was the last possible chance to sleep was just before the bush line and that was only around 1am maybe. And you'd only been racing for about 12 hours, so it feels like it's too early to stop and sleep. But you've still been up since, you know, six in the morning that day, driving over to the start. So you've still been awake for a full, full day's work. And then once you really need to sleep, maybe three or four a.m., you're on the tops and it's cold and windy and you can't really stop. So you're committed. So that's the trap that I think we fell into there. Yeah, interesting. And how was that uh, next day on the Hollyford? You guys were um, pushing up against with some of the other top teams. Yeah, so we, we did a lot of um, steep bush bashing up through Hidden Fall section. That was quite challenging. Uh, Tom and Reese did really well on the nav there. Um, there's about four or 500 meters 
vertical gain through steep bush. Um, I'm not sure Emily thought it was too bad. I think she described it as quite open terrain. She thought it was quite funny. But it just shows, you know, when you're doing bush trapping in Fjordland, relative, relatively open. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got out into the open, um, more open river valleys below Park Pass earlier the next morning, and we caught up to Highland events there. And so that was quite cool to see some other teams and travel with them up the valley flats towards Park Pass. And we had a bit of a tussle forward and back with Highland events through that section um, as we took different route options over Park Pass. We got ahead of them and headed all the way down the, that was the, the rock burn towards the Dart River. So that took us right through to the end of that day reaching the Dart River just after dark. Incredible. And was this the first time that you got to see Tim in three days? Yeah, well, we, we then jumped on the pet crafts. Uh, you're allowed to go down the Dart River in the night, so had the, the glow, um, glow sticks on, paddled down the Dart River, which was very disorienting in the dark. You've ever done some night paddling. Hard to see where you're going. You get out into Wakatipu. And we arrived at TA3, the end of this huge stage, at about 1.30 in the morning, I believe. And yet there we greeted our faithful support crew waiting for us about 1 in the morning. So, Tim, I didn't get to hear about your preparation, but were you uh, properly briefed in the state that these guys would be in? I think I knew that they'd be digging really deep. Like, I was under no illusion that, yeah, that they'd be going as hard as they could um, without blowing up. So, well, yeah. And what were you, what, were you, what was your jobs at the, the transition? Well, obviously setting them up, um, cooking hot food, always the top priority when you're racing. Um, my jet boil got a thrashing. Yeah. I only used it a couple of times before um, this trip, actually, which is a tad embarrassing. But, yeah, certainly got my money's worth out of it on this trip um yeah and just doing whatever the team told or the team members told me to do um yeah sometimes i probably jumped in a bit too hard and people told me oh, i've got it i've got it so yeah i was trying to find that balance of being helpful yet not intrusive <laughs> yeah i imagine that's really important and as people get tired as well maybe they're not quite so aware of exactly how much they're struggling. So, you know, being, being really, being a mum, I think could be really, really helpful strength. How much of a warning do you get uh, when the team's coming? Well, the first, um, well, after that um, big trek pack raft, we didn't know where they were because their track kept playing up. So we were just waiting, waiting, waiting for them. So that was pretty terrible. But generally we have a pretty strong sense of when they're going to show up based on the tracker. But then you're out of reception so often. So, yeah, sort of a, there is a bit of guesswork involved, but mm. yeah, usually you can roughly predict. Nice. Did you two, uh, did you have to fix any of their feet after that uh, first day? It was remarkable how good everyone's feet were. And they took really good care of their own feet, actually. So I didn't have to do anything around that. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, nice job, everyone, then, because that was definitely a tough one. And it sounds like a few a few teams had some difficulties there. 
did you talk with any of the other teams that have had had feet difficulties in the long trek? Did I? Yeah, or, or anyone. Um, well, um, we know that uh, Sam Manson from the Top Sport team had really hard, uh, had, had really rough feet after that stage. Um, and also that team Adaraxia, I think one of the team members um, had pretty rough feet, so they had to have an extended sleep in that transition. So we over, had overtaken MacPack Adaraxia without knowing it through that transition. Yeah, I haven't uh, spoken to them after the race, but I know Gene Z does have, seems to be predisposed to having feet problems. He had a lot of problems when in the Fjordland edition of God's Own. Um, yeah, that was, was not looking good, quite infected. So yeah, that's that's a major challenge to, to overcome. So um, you can see why uh, your team was just moving up more as other teams move backwards. We definitely had our foot problems come come later on in the race. <laughs> cool. Sure Emily can tell you a little bit about it. Okay. Cool. Um, it, what- se- it seems to be a bit, uh, a bit random as to who gets foot problems and who doesn't. And, you know, a lot of it seems to be due to luck of the draw in terms of what, what genetic cards you get played. Um, I don't know. Some people just seem never to get foot issues and, uh, and other people do. And I'm not sure that their, their foot preparation is really any different. Um, or the way they look after them, um, you know. Uh, yeah, I've almost seen the opposite, where those that know they have foot problems are going over and beyond to just keep their feet going to the extent that it's, yeah, it's not the attentiveness, it's not the attention, it's, yeah, something else. Hmm. So how were you guys on the bike? Was that nice to get off your feet? Yeah, I really enjoyed that bike. Um, I knew some of the others on the team had done it before in previous God Zones and some personal trips, but that whole section alongside Lake Wakatipu, that was all new country for me. So I was stoked. It was, yeah, really fun to do some quite exciting bits of single track kind of riding and kind of long sections of ducking down as you kind of ducked through the tutu bushes that were scraping over your head that was quite exciting and then i remember we had a pretty cold windy grind back sort of up the hill towards that transition before the next track stage so that was a bit more of a put your head down and and get it done situation oh yeah how was the morale at, at that point yeah i think morale was pretty good especially um as the yeah the weather was definitely deteriorating at that point and we're all pretty wet and there's a bit of a cold southerly blowing up but yeah we're all pretty chipper keeping each other company um having some good yarns and then going up some of those hills we got the singing going so mm-hmm. yeah i think we're, we're doing pretty well there mm-hmm. and the, the distribution of load was that still um the, the same as it was at the start of the race was there anyone who had started to struggle at that point? As far as I remember, I think, yeah, our distribution was pretty similar. Yeah, I think we were all carrying our stuff and, and all feeling pretty good with it, so that was cool. Yeah, nice one. Uh, so what was uh, the next stage after the bike? Maybe Emily, do you want to uh, talk to this next stage? 
Yeah, so here was like the crux of the race, right? You know, you've got one third of the distance, but like double the, if not more, the elevation. So we knew that it was going to be pretty booty. Um, and it, but it's great, the Erie Mountains. I mean, those of me and Reese, or I don't know if Reese it, um, having done all the first one, it was pretty, yeah, that trek in the first God's Own 10 years ago um, in the similar area was just amazeball. So we knew it was going to be awesome. Um, route choice is obviously always key too. And um, we had an amazing transition there. I feel like we just all ate our body weight in eggs and mushrooms and soup and all things good and hot. So we had a pretty good time time in that transition and just like felt pretty ready to go and we started on a good pace and we saw these guys were singing along and I was laughing lots and um yeah had a little bit of weight but nothing compared to that first stage so it kind of felt quite good a little bit freer um we chose like after that first hut transition we chose a lineup and um for me personally I've had really good feet in the past like pretty like don't have to worry about them really but um in doing some trapping in the fjord in November, I actually got um, a fungi infection and it was like pretty bad actually between my, and I didn't have any potassium permanganate. And um, I kind of felt like when we were first going up those, over those ridges, which was really neat country, I started to feel it kind of coming on between my toes and it was a little bit worrying because I'm like, oh man, I've got a long race to go and the only remedy for this is dry feet, you know, and how do you keep your feet dry when your shoes are soaked and you've got dry socks, but um the thing is probably needing to stop. So we, um, it was really good. The boys kind of like, we're like, no, no, that's fine. We need to sleep anyway. So we actually stopped probably a bit earlier on the ridgeline um, at about 10 o'clock roughly and had about a four hour sleep. And I was able to put some um, antifungal cream on and dry the feet out a bit, which is really good. And um, it was pretty pivotal timing, I'd say, because I'd kind of deteriorated quite a lot in that five hour section, just as we were kind of going up and around the, um, starting to get onto the ridgeline tops you know lots of rocks and stuff as well so um that was really yeah kind of I think yeah in hindsight it was a really smart decision and we moved better after that and I just put some um trying to keep my feet dry I put some got some like food bag you know the bigger glad bags and kind of put that over my socks and then put my shoes in those just to try and like keep them from getting any water from the outside in like a little bit more an extra layer of protection which um kind of seemed to work actually and in general like that we started to see like that was when um the root choice of other teams kind of or in general like the root choices the amount of root choices um became more obvious because we saw a lot of teams you know like uh, it was quite it made it quite interesting really that had taken lots of different variations from where we were and um throughout that and coming down to the morning we suddenly found ourselves kind of in a big group of teams, we saw top sport coming out of TA. We had Ataraxia and Highland events, and it was all suddenly like back on. We'd all kind of come out together. So that was kind of motivating. Um, I don't know what the boys will talk to this, but I felt yeah, like can, we... Can I, can I ask about uh, the feet a little bit more? I mean, sure. I, I struggle with some kind of athlete's foot as well. And yeah, if, if I have my feet are you know, sweaty or wet for too long, then they start to get itchy. But that's about it. So what's happening with you that's that's different? Um, it's like it's more it feels like it's underneath the skin. So you get really like it probably starts off with feeling like you've got a bit of gravel in your shoe, like a little gravel between your toes almost. Um, but then it kind of gets a lot more, it's more way more than an itch. It's quite it's really painful actually, like mm-hmm. radiates around and it starts to make these kind of 
not welts, but they are like open wounds, like it kind of, yeah, and they it spreads quite quick. Like it all, well, in Fjordland, it was kind of um, underneath my toes and around, but it can kind of start delaminating your whole foot. Like, I mean, we the boys started to get it too. A few red kind of splotches, splotches, sorry, um, on the like arch or the inside, like, yeah, base inside of your foot as well. And I started to get that, a little bit of that. So I was like, oh, you know, as soon as it starts, like really need to stop <laughs> I really need not stop necessarily but just keep them as dry as possible as much as possible and just keep refreshing the socks but there's not I mean yeah the best thing is to keep them dry and then to obviously get probably weight off them and those two things aren't necessarily all possible so you're just trying to mitigate it as much as you can with yeah changing shock, socks and like that glad bag idea was pretty good and then Later on, towards the end of that stage, thank goodness for Reese. This is going to be his. Um, he piggybacked me over a lot of the streams because uh, just mm-hmm. to try and keep them as dry for as long as possible. And um, he was an absolute legend. I probably broke his back, but in the last, I only got my feet really wet um, on the last two stream crossings before we finished that whole stage. So it was pretty. Since I, we stopped and had that sleep, you know, a night and a about oh, how, how long was that 24 hours earlier so it's really good it was really really good and, and, and then from then on um they were actually really manageable for the rest of the race and you kind of knew they would be because you're going further east it's pretty arid and dry on any of those lots of those bikes so um yeah it was just crucial i suppose at that stage just keep them preserve them as long as possible um yeah i don't know and what else does, does it does it get worse with the pr- pressure like if it starts infecting the soles of your feet yeah, is that a critically what, different to it being on top and between your toes well i've never let it get that bad personally well i've never had it get that bad but i know from from friends experiences and um from knowing what it feels like in the other areas i've had it that it would get yeah extremely extremely hard to walk if it was um you know infecting the whole if it spread the whole base of your foot like yeah it's not good news it really isn't like it would be really it's basically just taking all the layers of skin off and um you're walking on probably what feels like hot coals and knives and all kinds of awful things like it yeah it wouldn't be good it really wouldn't be so um especially not at that stage of the race either like i suppose it's the later stages you might be able to just mangle it together but there was still some bushy stages to go so self-preservation yeah is key but um yeah thanks a lot to the boys patience and stuff that we or just yeah making us stop early stop early deal with it and move on it was good it was good actually um in the end i don't know if they have anything else to say to that but yeah that trip was was relentless at times but i felt like in general uh being a pretty good on our feet we managed to keep ticking along and um kind of finish in pretty good spirits all up didn't we i don't know if the boys want to say us anything else i mean yeah i can say something i think there's always this tension when you've got something going wrong like um i mean on that ridge emily's feet were were, were, you know the uh the the thing we were concentrating on most and and particularly for the person who's experiencing the problem i think it's very hard to um to feel like you you might be letting the team down um and and the other thing that's really hard is is maybe stopping a bit longer than you'd want to especially when there are lots of other teams around, but you know, it's you're thinking, well, we're going to lose an hour on these people uh, who might be just behind us, or they'll catch us, or we'll or we'll lose the team that we've been travelling with. But the reality is that if you don't look after your feet, then um, or whatever the injury is, if you don't have the rest that you need, then then you're going to pay it 
it's going to pay back 10 times um, further down further down the track. I mean, even if we'd had half a rest and then tried to go on for the rest of the day, I think we'd have been much more than two and a half hours slower over the rest of that trek. So it's 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 difficult at the time to make that calculation because there's always this pressure, this pressure of needing to move. But um, I think that's one of the most important things in one of these longer races that, you know, taking the time to let your body recover is, is really important. I've since read, um, I've since read uh, Nathan's uh, race report and he said that they aimed for four hours a night, which is probably more than most of the other teams got every night, you know, and that shows the importance that, that Avaya put on sleep as well, uh, or at least stopping and getting your feet dry. Yeah, that, that's such an important nugget there. Uh, we have to push against our, our bias there a lot. So, yeah. And thanks, Reese. Like, I have to say thanks to, like, yeah, in particular that experience because I get pretty, like, oh, competitive still even knowing this stuff and knowing that it's going to be better. But in the moment, you're like, oh, gosh, we just have to keep going. We shouldn't be stopping for this. You know, you know you're going to need to stop at some point in the night anyway to sleep anyway. But at that point, there was still a bit of tension in me, like, ah, so early damn it we're moving so well i'm awake <laughs> and it feels like it feels like we'd been going for so long at that point surely the race is almost over but we'd only been going for four days and we still had about three days left so there's still a long way to go after this yeah it's amazing that knowing the bias isn't actually helpful to push against the bias your brain still finds a way to um yeah make, make you take more risk than necessary Reese, I wanted to ask you about the navigation on this section. This is some of the more interesting navigation that I've seen in a God zone. Were you having having a ball out there? I think some of the best the best part of it was that the, the hardest stuff for us at least happened at night. Um, and and it was often at night that the wind wind came in and the uh, and the clouds came in a bit as well. So there were those added layers to it as well. I um yeah I really enjoyed I, I mean we we work collaboratively I mean um I, I think everybody in the in the team's got a, a lot of experience with navigation and um um particularly on the treks Al and and um and then Tom were doing a lot of the co-navigation and 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 certainly did the lead navigation in many places as well when I got a bit tighter but um I think there was a big route choice to make on that on the on the first section of that Era Mountains um, trek coming up from CP11. Um, and you can see that we'd, we'd briefly considered going, going, going through the valley, but look, you come up where, where Team 44 is there on the, on the screen at the moment, which is along the ridge um, travel. The, the alternative was to kind of straight line it and go straight down through the valley. And we looked at that and thought, well, it's, it's pretty steep and you never really know what the scrub's going to be like. It seemed to me that that, that was going to be high alpine scrub and fairly heavy heavy going especially if we're going to be there at night and um and we thought we wouldn't labor that but the ridge i mean again it's aesthetically it's it's enjoyable i mean everybody i think everybody who tramps in new zealand enjoys ridge travel and and so it's always the thing that's drawn me more um going on a ridge and uh and in fact we had pretty good travel in in places and pretty hard travel in others um and when you look when you look back at the tails or the, at the tracking, <laughs> the reality is that it didn't seem to make much difference anyway. So I don't know. I don't know whether they, they um, Warren and Adam and the others set out to make uh, make these courses 
uh, much of a much just opinion, <laughs> not not measuring which uh, which route you take. But it seems seems to be that um, maybe teams are just choosing the routes that suit them best. But um, we were very close to uh, Highland events going coming out of CP11, and uh, we saw them at CP12, and they took a dramatically different line. Yeah, the route choices were very well balanced, and mm. so it just came down to execution yeah and and not choosing a route that's bad for you mm. like choosing a dry route if you need to keep your feet dry stuff like that but i was a, a, as with you concerned that the scrub could be pretty nasty as you get into the uh down away from the tops but i was also unfamiliar with what the tops were like there whether they're um like whether they've got a spiny uh rocky cliffy ridge line or whether they're whether it's more broad scree that you're you're traveling on, can you sh- share what those ridge lines that you were on on that trek were like? Well, Emily had some experience and um, going through this area on on the first cod zone, so we, we knew the tops travel was pretty good. Um, yeah, it was a mixture actually. The first section of the ridge was was there were some really big cliffs, and we had to to drop down um, a couple of rock belts and maybe a couple hundred meters before climbing back onto the ridge. Um, Halfway through, it really kind of mellowed out and, and became quite walkable uh, about where we ended up camping, which if anybody's watching the, um, the video is, is where our 33 is, is sitting on the, on the video at the moment. Um, and then um, f- further on, it was much the same. I mean, there's, there's some fairly big climbs that are hidden in that again. I mean, similar to the Red Hills Trek. Um, you, you ended up, um, well, I certainly ended up underestimating how much climb there was. And I think the, the, um, the official God's own figures were that it was something like 3,500 meters. And I, I would, I would um, estimate that maybe there was a bit more than that, um, even, in, even in the route that we took. Um, and I was trying to minimize the climb because I think, I think the guys who went through the valley possibly did a bit, a bit more climb but didn't go as far. Um, and so again, it's that kind of um, trying to make that calculus about what you're good at, and try not to blow your legs up too quickly. What, what, what time of the day were you doing CP12 to CP13? That was early morning, so we got down to CP12 at about um, six. Oh, it was about eight a.m. Hmm. Uh, and okay. that's where we seemed to all be together. <laughs> Do you have any tips for coming off those tops in the right place at nighttime? Any navigation tips? How did you execute that so well? So we were we went over. So this was actually one area where I, I I had a look at some of the tracking and decided we'd made made a route um, mistake. So just where we are at the moment, there. If you if you zoom in um, for the people who are watching the video, we went right over point seventeen ninety nine. You can see our track goes right over the top. Um, and Ataraxia behind us um, actually ended up they ended up camping just before that on that shoulder, and then they came. I believe they came around that bowl and looking. Looking at the um, at the map again, I think that could have been avoided going up 100 meters. But um, having gone along the top, at least we knew we we were on the top, um, and so that gave us a hard a hard point to navigate off. And then you're you're mainly following ridges, and then you know you're allowed to carry a um, you're allowed to carry a, a, a um, an outwatch as well with you. So you can, you can actually work out where your what your altitude is, as long as you've re- recently reset it and the, you know, the weather's not changing significantly. So it's a bit of a combination of three things. There's, you know, knowing where you've, we've been recently, 
knowing fairly with fairly good certainty where you what your altitude is, and then I think compass is, is very much well for some people very much underrated. But I you know I'm I'm extremely reliant on my compass and and getting a good compass bearing and making sure we're always always checking that we're going the right way because one of the things you can easily do at night, and I, I'm sure many people who who are, who are um, road gainers and orienteers listening to this will will know you can very easily convince yourself that you're going down one ridge and that the, your compass is slightly wrong um, and it's it's never that way around it's it's always that you're wrong and your compass is right and uh, again it's one of those cognitive errors that you have to you have to remind yourself of that really your equipment's normally better than you are especially uh, when you're tired at night and uh, and um, and you can't see very far nice one you've done that really well and execution looked reasonable with this uh, other long navigation leg at daytime uh, this time. That pack of four, you've all chosen the same way. Was there any uh, choice to go down through the valleys? Um, I don't, did, I don't think there was. Right? There wasn't really any route choice. I mean, your other option, I guess, was to come up onto the tops from CB12. Um, but that just involved um, thousands of meters more climb. And it was going to be a lot slower because... Um, a couple of k's past CB12, once you hit the valley, there was actually a track leading halfway over. Um, and then after that, it was going to be fairly good open country and across some fairly low, well, reasonably low passes um, or low peaks um, comparative to the rest of the ground around it. So I don't think there were any significant nav choices in the second half of that race. Yeah, it looks like there's oh, pretty, strong, pretty strong consensus. Mm. Just scrolling through the tracking here. Uh, no one, no one's gone over. So yeah, that's correct there. Cool. So yeah, that's, that's incredible. I was really stoked when I first saw the course to see such big, uh, backcountry navigation leagues and, uh, very impressed by how most of the teams have, have handled that. And yeah, the fact that you're paying attention to just that one little extra detour shows that you're, you're paying a, a lot of putting a lot of effort into getting that nav perfect that's yeah really impressive uh, how, guess, how are you yep i guess you can always improve um and you know the beauty of god's own is that you you can't just improve in minutes you you feel like when you get to the end you you feel like you can improve in days um and you know you count up half an hour here and a couple of a couple of stops there and suddenly you've got half a day up your sleeve that you that you may not may not have otherwise had so i think that's one of the um, the, the best things about going over over your race again with God's own, uh, you really do feel like you can always go back and and improve so much and and maybe do better next time. Wow, was there anything interesting on this next cycle, or was that uh, fairly straightforward? How was morale at at this this stage? Well, personally, that was the hardest stage of the uh, whole race for me. Uh, I had a bit of a wall on that day. Um, that's the bike ride over the Nevis and the old. So is this man. day four, at this stage or five? Oh, it's all a blur now. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, probably day five. So the weather's improved and it's a real hot day over the Nevis, into the Nevis Valley. And there's another huge climb onto the old woman range. A uh, bit of an overlap from the Wanaka, but we're heading over to Roxburgh. And that climb there for me was just relentless going up and up and up. Um, yeah, I think sometimes in God's zones you just hit a bit of a low patch and we've been going continuously for so many days there. It's sort of natural to have a low patch at some point. 
but yeah, that was really all consuming for me that day. And I really thank the other guys and taking the weight and giving me a few toes up the hill. Mm, so you did redistribute the load? Oh, a lot. So yeah, Reese was really strong in that day and Emily helped with a lot of uh, towing. So all credit to those guys. Does anyone want to talk to uh, this other um, short section with the, I'm not exactly sure what map uh, you had. So was there, but what kind of map did you get given for uh, the short stage with all the checkpoints? All I want to say, all I want to say quickly is that Reese is a bloody legend. He nailed that in the dark. I've never seen anyone walk up to one specific rock amongst so many other gullies and ridges and everything else that was going on. And it's like, and he was like, it's here. And it, it was every time. I don't know what the others think, but um, it was super impressive. I am very, very impressed. I mean, I knew he was great at NAV, but like, honestly, there was so much potential in there to go. 100 metres, 200 metres, somewhere along a featureless or very much the same thing in the dark. So, um, yeah, no, it was pretty phenomenal. And you'll see our, I'm sure on the tracking, that we just hit it like a boss every time. Cool. I might try to get uh, some of the, the Togo maps from, from you uh, so we can have a look at, yeah, exactly what you guys were looking at. At one point he said, yeah, I've super spiked it. <laughs> you can <laughs> tell he's pretty happy with himself. Uh, the room is true, Reese. I think we had a good stage there. Uh, look, you know, I think we, we had a combination of um, having had some good sleep and then we um, we took some really conservative lines. So from CP19 to CP20, instead of going kind of, it was right in the depths of night. So it was pretty, um, it was pretty foggy then as well. Um, and instead of kind of trying to traverse across that hill, we decided to to go south and and kind of up that leading ridge, yeah, along there and, and rather up there and then dropped into CP20 um, once we knew we were at the right height, I think on balance, you you know, you can see these other these other lights casting around there, and just decided it was going to be very hard to come across multiple different gullies, some of which were going to be mapped and some of which weren't. Um, and um, and I think that worked for us. Um, it might not have been the quickest, certainly wasn't the quickest thing to do in the light, but um, when you're a bit tired and 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 trying to um, trying to make sure that you're not losing time by uh, by, by making mistakes, I think it was the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, we uh, have a bit of a phrase in orienteering that uh, you can't uh, win the race on any particular leg, but you can definitely lose it on mm. any given leg. And so just not being a loser uh, goes a long way to, to winning. Cool, nice job, nice job. How are you feeling in those uh, day six and, and day seven? Did it feel like the home stretch once you're, you're you're on a bike, so you're moving faster, and then you're on the water, so you can go with the flow a little bit? Who wants to speak to those, those last stages? I will just put a note in about the serpentine, though. You, you kind of flicked over that. <laughs> that was um, a very interesting section when you're in a pack craft thinking, yay, I'm going to get some time on a cool river, and we're in a, <laughs> a cow pat Um swamp for lack of a better word um going round and round kind of what felt like almost in circles um we cope with the farmer in the daylight we we're chugging along but um yeah well there was some questioning in there thinking why the heck are we here <laughs> but- I, I remember oh i was just super stressed for the whole of that river 
So it started out being quite enjoyable because we we're kind of sitting in our nice boat and the sun was shining on our legs and it was really good. And then I just started seeing all these um, things that could potentially puncture a pack raft everywhere. <laughs> there was like barbed wire coming in from one side. And then once that was over, the, we came across um, like a, a metal waratah just like a few inches under the surface of the water <laughs> that I like spotted at the last possible moment. And then you could just see waratahs everywhere. And oh, I was terrified because I think at that point, if we'd have punctured a raft, it would have just been this completely demoralizing walk all the way to TA with this big broken raft um, just getting dropped by teams coming from behind us. So well, we did, I was we did. glad when that paddle was over. <laughs> we, we saw a team who had had a, a rip through their raft so long that it, they couldn't possibly repair it and they were packing up and they had to walk all the way out. So I felt quite sorry for them. Yeah. Yeah. And we'd, had a, we'd actually had a puncture in the Pike River um, well earlier in the race and we'd had a good, pretty good repair on it, but it was slowly leaking. So this whole way down the Serpentine, I'm paddling with one hand and holding the, holding the tape down with the other, basically. Wow. So I never would have thought on, that was such a... Such a risky stage. Yeah, I, I did imagine just a, a lazy Sunday cruise down the river looking at that one. Well, it does look beautiful from the drone pictures. You see the swirling river, but when you're actually in it, you're just going around in circles. And credit to Reese, he was following the map closely. So when there was huge dog legs in the river, that we would get out and portage them. So mm-hmm. you'd walk about 50 meters to avoid half a K of um, twisting river. Nice. But I think once we got to the end of that stage, we got to the TA7 there, uh, which is the start of a 100k bike. Um, Nathan Favre said it's 120k, actually. We felt like the, the finish really was within grasp because um, we were doing some calculations of this dark zone that was at the end. And we realized that for us, it wasn't a dark zone. We knew we, were gonna, we weren't going to be able to paddle all the way through. But we realized that if we hustled, that we could do this 100k bike and the first 30k of the river just in time to start paddling right at the start of the dark zone and so essentially we could catch up to other teams who'd been stopped there so and, and at the same time we'd seen further faster fledglings just behind us coming into the ta and so we really started to get a bit of a hustle on there and we felt this energy of lots of teams behind us and um over that 100k bike ride, we, I think we've all felt quite good as working together as a team, biking through um, towards the coast. So that felt like a really exciting part of the race. Really, uh, really quick finish for those last three or four stages. Yeah, they were coming thick and fast, uh, the transitions towards the end. So, yeah, that definitely sounds like a fun way to finish what has been a grueling week. Yes, one of the highlights was the welcome party in Middle March as we came off the Rock and Pillar Range and there was about 20 people, some of which uh, Tom Tom and I knew from Otago were cheering us on there. We didn't know what had hit us. Tim, what is it like from your perspective at this stage, this late stage in the race? Oh, honestly, just so many so many things going through your head. It was just manic, to be honest. It was utterly manic because... I know we, we, we kind of dropped the ball really like uh, for that last coast air section. Um, they would have 
ride three kilometers down the road, but it wasn't exactly clear in the race book. It was kind of in fine print. So all of, all of a sudden we had to set up bikes as well at that last transition. And then when they came in, it was like, it was like all on, like it was a foot race to the line, basically. Like how close it's going to be was anyone's guess. So I think part of me was like, yes, we're going to finish this race. But then it was just like, well, we could actually get a podium here. Like it's close. It's really close. And yeah, it was oh, just at the end, it was just a blur. And my self-care went out the window big time. Like, and to be honest, I'm, I'm taking the price for it now. Like I didn't have a proper breakfast. I got really dehydrated and, oh, I just stood there thinking, God, how are these guys doing it? How, how is it? humanly possible to be still moving along the speech in a fairly decent clip you know was, i think it's worth backtrack, backtracking yeah. a little bit to the um the start of the kayak there maybe emily wants to tell us about going from the bike to the kayak because i thought that was one of the most exciting parts of the race just a little bit back so we would just finished our bike and i feel like the team would agree that bike was good we um you know, compared to the one previous, I felt we were all like pretty much on the same page and were pretty awake, which was good because it's not ideal to go into the last night thinking like you might have to have another all-nighter. Um, we managed to get half an hour's sleep in that transition, which compared to the others around us wasn't a lot. And I think at that stage of the race, it really counts. Like, you know, it's hard to be racing others that may have had a full night on that river or on that TA. Um but nonetheless, it was pretty exciting to see Top Sport and some of the other teams all kind of taking off at the same time. Um, I felt a bit gutted because after that sleep, I felt a bit ratty. Like I felt pretty good going, coming into TA and then coming out. I just felt pretty crap for the first time in the race, really. Um, like pretty sleep deprived, obviously, as you do. But also um, what Reese was quick to pick up on, going quite low. And um, so I quickly had to swap with Alistair because I was just getting a bit blurry vision like I couldn't really I wasn't really being able to focus on what was happening in the river and where the boat was relative to where Reese's boat was and Tom's boat was um so I swapped and good old Reese, what a legend um he ended up kind of like paddling me through that hour and a half section of kind of fuzz fuzzy brain like I was trying to eat a lot but my stomach was really sore and um I think it was a combination of just like, yeah, some bad sleep monsters and quite a significant low probably in the end of it. Like I've been trying to get some sugar on board, but it wasn't happening that fast. So I spent a lot of time not paddling <laughs> with my head down and these guys were um, amazing. And I do, I really want to thank them because I'm pretty hard on myself and I was feeling pretty shit because all the time I'm thinking we've got to get, you know, 7.30 is when these guys are going to go and we, d we want to be there, you know? And what a Trojan effort because we did get there at about 7.26 and me and Reese, Reese's watch is either a little bit early or late, I don't know, in the brain fog moment, but um, he's saying, okay, before we get out and go to the loo then, and we just turned off to do that and they're like, go, so the others go and we're like, sheesh, okay, so we pull on off and we're off the back from the start but still kind of in the excitement, which was fun and um, I must take my head off to Tom and Alistair because I just cracked up. The energy was there. It was full force, especially with Alistair. I loved it. He was on fire that morning, which was great for morale in particular. Um, and I felt like we paddled pretty well because, I mean, some of those teams we were around, like Top Sport and stuff, like you take your hats off to them, they are a paddling team. So, I mean, 
we we didn't lose too much time and that part of the gorge is pretty beautiful so it was kind of motivating to have others around you to be kind of pulled along in it but also a little bit stressful at the same time because you knew you were gonna come into the next stage where basically they are all gonna run and I'm like oh gosh do I really feel like running after seven days of hustle personally but um anyway we made it there and um they had our bikes which was pretty cool I do remember getting on my bike though and my handlebars are nearly 180 and I'm thinking oh my gosh what's happened here but yeah we got onto that trek and um the boys are really good they took all the weight and kind of I set off in a march and I felt like we did hold a pretty steady pace for that last trek I mean wasn't too much running I know unfortunately for Alistair I did do feel like I let him down in that suggestion it's like yes we're gonna run we're gonna run um but I felt like we did hold out. I don't know, looking on the tracking, whether those boys have analysed it, but um, I feel like we did kind of hold it all. But I was a little bit upset with myself, but I'd come a bit right by then. I think it's um pretty cruel, though. I almost feel like that dark zone, you know, to have been, yeah, be pretty munted after a week out in the bush and then be ex- <laughs> then it turns into a time trial for the final four hours. It kind of, it is, it's impressive what Ataraxia were able to do in the end. But, um, yeah. That moment was probably the low for me, that last river paddle. Um, glad to be able to turn around slightly, but a little bit sad that I suppose we, I mean, we came, like Reese would say, I feel like placing-wise, I think we came where we deserved to come, you know, like the other teams have put up a pretty good. But it was kind of interesting, and I'm sure for viewing purposes, quite neat to have so many teams so close together, you know, um, regardless at the end of a race like that, you know, to only be separated by, minutes rather than hours is always makes it quite exciting but um can I just jump in and say something I think I think um anyone who knows Emily will will know that she's very hard on herself um maybe without good without good reason in most most cases um Emily is very quick to praise other people um which she has done many times during this podcast but we probably haven't I'm giving her enough praise as well. And uh, I would have to say that Emily's one of the strongest individuals that I've ever met and particularly racing with, um, with type one diabetes. It was just, just incredible to watch um, how, how you manage that. And, um, and, you know, despite that, we're able to really be up there at the top of the sport. So, I mean, it's, it was, it was, it was, it was really something to behold. And, and, and um, I was really in awe of you at many times during the race, Emily. So, I think I think you shouldn't be quite so hard on yourself about you know some of the little blips that we all had. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you, Reese. And yeah, we are glad to hear that you yeah managed to get some sugar to where it was needed. Uh, sounds like if uh, you're going to be having some rest time, then in the boat is probably quite a good a good choice because at least you can can move be a bit bit trickier on the bike. I'm I'm going to need to go, Gene. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think we'll we'll yeah. wrap it up now. Anyway, so uh, congratulations, guys. Uh, I thought you guys did a, a really strong performance. And yeah, I'm just so thrilled to be following some of you over the past few years. And uh, just, yes, seeing you get closer and closer to the top. So uh, I, I look forward to uh, seeing you next year. So thank you for, for sharing your journey, all four of you. And Tim, the crucial support. So and don't don't forget, uh, my father Steve was also um, supporting for us as well. So he provided a lot of uh, a lot of experience, having done a number of well, seven God Zones and however many Southern Traverses before that. So yeah, we're thank you very much to Tim and Steve. Yes, but just adding to that, um, Steve was really the brains behind the operation. I just rocked up and 
Chip did as best I could, um, and he definitely kept me on track, and I learned a lot, and yeah, I wouldn't change the week for anything. It was it was amazing. So, yeah, thanks to you guys again. Had an amazing time. Cheers to Steve and Tim. Thanks very much, Gene. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Luke. If you're enjoying the Perfect Flow podcast and want more value from it in the future, there are some ways you can support it. The first is to rate or leave a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or other platforms where it's available. The second is to share this podcast or specific episodes on social media or with friends. The third is to get involved more directly through the Perfect Flow page on Facebook, where I'm trying to construct a more interactive community. I want Perfect Flow to belong to the listeners, and if you tell me what topics you're most interested in, or even suggest specific guests, I'll do my best to make it happen. This is your opportunity to be part of something that answers your questions and adds value to your life. Another good reason to follow Perfect Flow on Facebook is that I post links to episodes, blog posts, and anything I find useful to this page. It's a great way to follow my training, racing, and learning. Another great way to stay engaged is to subscribe to genebeverage.nz. This way you will get podcasts and blogs emailed to you, avoiding the clutter of Facebook. I don't know where this project will take us, but the reception so far has been positive. Who knows where we might be in a few years?